Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. A freak accident beneath the East River. He feels the body flying past him. It disappears into the hole. A mysterious substance that rains from the sky. She started to wonder if this was a miracle, some act of God and a perplexing crash into the depths of Lake Michigan. It was clear that a plane had simply vanished. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. New York City is a booming metropolis of over 8 million people. And its subway, with more stations than any other system in the world, serves over 1 billion riders per year. Just a short ride into Brooklyn is an institution that celebrates the history of this remarkable network, the New York Transit Museum. Housed inside a decommissioned subway station is a collection of vintage trolley cars, fare boxes, turnstiles, and other relics related to keeping the city moving. But according to senior museum interpreter Polly Desjarlais, one item speaks to a disaster of epic proportions. The artifact is a cast iron cylindrical chamber with rivets along the length of the top and two circular cast iron feet. This tool tells an astonishing tale of brave men who risked their lives to dig the tunnels that run beneath New York. What is this object? And how is it linked to one of the most terrifying disasters in subway history? 1916, New York City. The population of this metropolis is booming. And to accommodate this rapid growth, the city is embarking on a monumental task expanding the subway system to connect Manhattan to the borough of Brooklyn. The men digging these new tunnels are a group of urban miners known as sand hogs. And on February 19th, 
28-year-old Marshall Maybe is among a crew of grizzled veterans working beneath the East River. He's 150 feet out into the river, and he's probably about 25 feet under the riverbed. It's very dark, it's muddy, it's dirty, it's very hot. Maybe and his team are digging at the front of the tunnel beneath a massive cylinder called a shield. It acts as protection for the men. It is essentially a metal roof that can be hydraulically moved forward. When the shield drives forward, it clears a path for the sandhogs to dig. The men slowly make progress. But what seems like a typical workday soon takes an ominous turn when Maybe suddenly notices a fracture in the tunnel ceiling. He sees the crack appear in the mud. He sees a, a line appear. Then it's a loud noise of rushing air. Maybe is horrified. The crack seems to be growing. He watches as a powerful force sucks tools and equipment off of the ground and up into the opening. Then the situation grows even more dire. He feels the body of one of his co-workers flying past him. It disappears into the hole. Then a second co-worker flies past him, towards the ceiling and into the chasm. Maybe knows that if he doesn't hold on, he will be next. He tries desperately to find something to grab onto. He feels himself being pulled. But the force is too powerful. Maybe's body is violently driven through 25 feet of muddy, sandy riverbed and into the East River itself. Then a massive geyser shoots him and his co-workers far above the water's surface before plunging them back down into the frigid water. Luckily, he managed to swim to this piling and, and hold on. The dock workers threw him a rope and then they hauled him in. Miraculously, Maybe escapes with only minor scrapes and a bruised leg. But tragically, the two other members of his crew die from their injuries, which makes Maybe's survival seem all the more extraordinary. Reporters on the scene ask how he accomplished this astonishing feat. He had the wherewithal to hold his breath and not inhale mud and sand and silt and water. As news of the tragic event spreads, incredulous New Yorkers are left wondering what caused this disaster. Experts believe the answer lies with two vital tools used to dig the tunnel. The shield and another device known as an air compressor, like this one on display at the New York Transit Museum. The importance of air compressors was to provide clean, breathable air for the men. The compressor also maintains air pressure to prevent the tunnel from collapsing under the weight of the earth and water above. But this also means that the air pressure inside the tunnel is incredibly dense. And any change in that balance can create a potentially fatal disaster. It is believed that while the shield moved forward, it struck a boulder, causing the fissure in the tunnel ceiling. The compressed air rushed through the hole, creating what is known as a blowout. It's somewhat similar in the sense that if you opened an aeroplane door mid-flight, everything inside the plane would get pushed through that door and out into the atmosphere. In the wake of the accident, the damage to the tunnel is quickly repaired. And despite his horrifying experience, 
maybe returns to work just one week later, to the proud approval of his fellow Sandhogs. Maybe continues in his dangerous occupation for the next 25 years, and he is able to witness the completion of the tunnel when it opens to the public in 1920. Today, this underground connection is a crucial part of New York City commuters' daily lives, even though most are unaware of the heroic effort that led to its creation. New York wouldn't be the city that it is today without the subway and without men like Marshall Maybe. And this air compressor, on display at the New York City Transit Museum, acts as a memorial to one man's extraordinary tale of survival and his devotion to a project that transformed the Big Apple. Known as the horse capital of the world, Lexington, Kentucky is also home to the oldest college west of the Allegheny Mountains, Transylvania University, founded in 1780. And located on campus is the Monroe Moosnick Museum, an institution that chronicles the early days of the university's medical school. It features bizarre specimens, such as one of the world's largest hairballs, a cadaver made of wax, and a collection of fetal skeletons. But amongst these oddities is one object that may never be fully understood. The artifact is contained inside of a glass bottle, and it's a substance that is kind of submerged in a murky liquid. The substance inside of the jar is roughly 140 years old. According to Transylvania University professor Kurt Gody, the contents of this jar triggered a storm of meteorological confusion. It's just outside of anybody's comprehension of how the world should exist. What bizarre contents does this bottle contain? And where do they come from? March 3rd, 1876, Olympia Springs, Kentucky. On a beautiful spring day in this remote farming community, Mrs. Allen Crouch tends to her plants. But as the day wears on, the weather dramatically shifts. Mrs. Crouch noticed a whirlwind in the sky. Then she's suddenly struck by the realization that this is no ordinary weather. She was out in the yard and pieces of some substance started hitting her and landing all around her. A perplexed Mrs. Crouch scampers for cover and watches in bewilderment as the downpour continues. Moments later, the storm passes. When she heads back outside, she's startled by what she sees. The fields are covered by small chunks of a bizarre pink substance. She comes to see quickly that the livestock are gorging themselves and eating as much of this as fast as they possibly can. When she picks up a piece from the ground, Mrs. Crouch is horrified. What she was holding was a piece of raw meat. But why would raw meat rain down from the sky? She started to wonder if this was a miracle, some act of God, a message for something greater. When she reaches out to neighbors, Mrs. Crouch discovers that, oddly, she's alone. This seemed to be an entirely isolated incident. Nobody else in Olympia Springs saw anything in the sky. Nobody else had anything land on their property. Locals descend on the Crouch fields, determined to identify this mysterious meat. But taste tests are inconclusive. They tasted it and declared sometimes that it was venison, sometimes mutton, sometimes bear meat. Everybody seemed to have their own opinion. In search of answers, 
the community turns to the experts. Scientists at Transylvania University came to collect samples of it. The meat specimens taken from Mrs. Crouch's farm are preserved in jars, such as the one now in the collection of the Monroe Musnick Museum. Initially, there were dozens of samples collected. Currently, this is the only known remaining sample. When the press gets a hold of this story, it dubs the phenomenon meat rain. It was clear that something very unique and unprecedented happened on the Crouch Farm. But the question remains, what is meat rain? And why did it fall from the sky? It's 1876 in Olympia Springs, Kentucky. On a clear day in March, strange pink chunks suddenly rain down from the skies, blanketing the Crouch family farm. The Crouches and their neighbors soon come to a grisly realization. The substance appears to be raw meat. But what could have caused this freakish phenomenon? Samples of this strange substance are sent to labs across the country for testing. And soon, the theories start pouring in. The first published theory was that it was dried spawn of frogs. Some propose that high winds whipped up gobs of frogs' eggs high into the atmosphere before depositing them on the Crouch Farm. But a lab in New Jersey reveals that the substance comes from an altogether different animal. The Newark Scientific Association looked at samples and declared that it was horse meat. <laughs> But the lab offers no explanation for the most perplexing aspect of the mystery. Why did horse meat fall from the sky? Eight days after the freak occurrence, a respected journalist named William Livingston Walden authors a jaw-dropping theory in the New York Times. A discussion of asteroid belts in the media leads Walden to propose the idea of a similarly functioning meat belt. Some planet exploded that was populated by animals. And therefore, there was a cosmic meat belt that on this Friday morning just happened to rain into the atmosphere as a meat shower. Many are stunned by this novel and provocative theory. But a more earthly explanation is offered by a professor at Transylvania University. That theory was that a flock of vultures was flying overhead and disgorged themselves. The professor proposes that hundreds of these birds consumed tainted meat from decomposing horses and other animals, only to fall ill in the vicinity of Mrs. Crouch's farm. The vultures had eaten something, potentially a poisoned cattle or cattle that had started to rot, and as a result, were vomiting as they were taking flight. While the truth behind this freak meteorological occurrence may never be known, this jar, locked away at the Mustick Museum at Transylvania University, is evidence of the strange day in Kentucky when it rained not cats and dogs, but meat. Los Angeles, California has some of the best weather in the entire country, with more than 300 days of sunshine a year. But located on the northeast side of the city is a museum that showcases a less pleasant side of L.A. The Los Angeles Police Museum. Among the many items on display is a 1955 paddy wagon, a protective bomb suit, and a rifle from the gangster squad. But according to museum executive director Glenn Martin, amidst these flashier exhibits is one rather plain set of papers. 
Displayed in the frame is a six-page document with very well-written cursive handwriting. And located in the center of the frame is an enlarged black and white photograph of a young man, a teenager. These pages reveal a disturbing tale of violence, extortion, and one of the most harrowing investigations in Los Angeles history. This sensational story will shock anybody to the core. Who is the man in this photo? And what startling secrets do these pages reveal? December 15th, 1927, Los Angeles, California. At 4.45 p.m., bank clerk Perry Parker returns home from work to find his wife absolutely distraught. She reveals that their 12-year-old daughter, Marion, hasn't come home from school. Then, as Parker processes the unsettling news, he receives a telegram with a troubling message. Marion has been kidnapped. It informs him that Marion's okay, that she's secure, and that he should wait for further instructions. Parker initially heeds to the direction. He's standing by waiting for additional word. But as his dread mounts, a sense of urgency compels him to act. They were just worried out of their mind about their missing daughter, so they brought in the police. Police spring into action, but then another letter arrives with very specific instructions. Within the letter, there's a request for $1,500 in gold certificates. The letter also contains a demand for the Parkers not to contact the police. The following evening, Perry receives a call. The man on the other end declares that he is the kidnapper, and he's ready to return Marion. And that call directs him to a location not far from his home where the exchange of money for his little girl is supposed to occur. Parker gathers $1,500 in gold certificates and goes to the appointed site, with the police trailing in hopes of nabbing the kidnapper. But the time slowly passes, and the kidnapper never shows. Parker's devastated by the turn of events and returns home. The next evening, the abductor rings again, and he's furious. He's angry because the Parkers have defied his wishes to involve the authorities. It seems the police were trailing Parker too closely and were spotted by the kidnapper. But he is willing to grant another chance for the return of Marion Parker. The caller directs Parker to meet him once again, this time without the police. Parker has the ransom money in a bag. He goes to the meet location. Shortly after he arrives, an anxious Parker watches as a dark car pulls up. Behind the wheel is a masked man wielding a gun. And in the passenger seat, Parker sees what appears to be his sleeping daughter. The relieved father hands over the ransom money. The kidnapper verified that it is indeed the $1,500 in gold certificates. Then the kidnapper pushes Marion out of the vehicle and speeds off. Parker races to his daughter, but is greeted by a crippling sight. Wrapped in a blanket is the dead body of his beloved Marion. Who committed this brutal crime? And will they be brought to justice? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. It's 1927, Los Angeles, California. The 12-year-old daughter of prominent banker Perry Parker has been abducted. When Parker delivers a bag full of ransom money to a prearranged drop point, he's greeted by a harrowing sight the dead body of his beloved daughter. So who's the criminal behind this vicious plot? And will he be brought to justice? Parker reveals the details of the harrowing ordeal to the police, including a description of the kidnapper's car. Armed with this information, investigators track down the vehicle, which leads to a break in the case. Fingerprint lifts were taken, and ultimately an identification was made. The prints belong to a 19-year-old known criminal named William Edward Hickman. When Parker learns the identity of the suspect, he's dumbfounded. William Edward Hickman was a former banking apprentice of Perry Parker. Several years earlier, Perry Parker had caught Hickman embezzling bank funds and had him arrested. Police surmised that the kidnapping and murder of Marion was a cruel form of payback. Now, with a motivated suspect in sight, the LAPD launches the largest manhunt in its history. All told, 20,000 people, both law enforcement and beyond, are mustered to search for the murderer of little Marion Parker. Seven days later, investigators discover that the traceable gold certificates that Parker had given him have been used at a gas station in Arlington, Oregon. Hickman is tracked down nearby and arrested. And when he's taken into custody by the LAPD, Hickman confesses to the abduction and murder of Marion Parker, believing that the truth will save him from the gallows. He outlines every step of his shocking crime on these handwritten pages. 
In the confession, Hickman speaks of killing the little girl to avoid detection. Hickman is found guilty of murder. And on October 19, 1928, he is executed at San Quentin Prison. Today, the chilling details contained within this confession, now on display at the Los Angeles Police Museum, provide the most detailed first-hand account of a brutal crime that shocked this city. South Haven, Michigan. Founded in 1833, this quaint community on the coast of Lake Michigan has long been a port of call for shipping vessels traveling between Chicago and Milwaukee. It is also home to the Michigan Maritime Museum. On display is a life preserver from a luxury yacht, a wooden chair from an 1800s-era steamer, and other relics that speak to the region's rich nautical history. But there is one artifact on display that, according to author Valerie Van Heest, holds the key to one of Lake Michigan's most baffling secrets. This artifact is made of cotton, it's peach in color, and it has long sleeves. Preserved for over a half a century, this men's shirt is one of the only surviving remnants of an event that defies explanation. The tale behind this shirt has perplexed people for decades. How is this shirt linked to one of Lake Michigan's most enduring maritime mysteries? Friday, June 23rd, 1950. At 7.30 p.m., Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 departs from New York City's LaGuardia Airport bound for Minneapolis, Minnesota. The aircraft's 55 passengers and three-person crew settle in for the six-hour journey. The evening was clear and beautiful on the East Coast. The sun was just setting as the plane headed to its cruising altitude of 6,000 feet. But as the plane nears the Great Lakes, the pilot receives a request from air traffic control. He's asked to bring the plane lower due to a gathering storm. It was ordinary practice to try to fly under a storm. After adjusting course, the pilot radios that he'll check back in as he nears Lake Michigan. But hours later, air traffic control has received no signal from Flight 2501. Air traffic control knew there was a problem. Pilots simply didn't go that long without touching base. They immediately send out alerts to authorities in the surrounding region. But there are no signs of the missing craft. By 5.30 in the morning, it was clear that 55 passengers, three crew members, and the plane had simply vanished. Investigators suspect that the plane may have plunged into the waters of Lake Michigan. So the Coast Guard and the Navy launch a massive rescue effort. But the next evening, there are still no signs of the aircraft. Many begin to wonder how a full-size plane and all of its passengers and crew could completely disappear into thin air. Then, two days later, a fisherman in Lake Michigan hauls in his net and discovers a curious catch. He saw something he'd never expected to see in a fishing net. It was a suitcase, and it broke open. Things started spilling out. One of the items within is this peach-colored, long-sleeved shirt, now on display at the Michigan Maritime Museum. 
The fisherman immediately reports his findings to authorities. The South Haven Coast Guard went out to the spot where the fishermen had reported bringing in debris, and they found more luggage and blankets from the airplane. The blankets bear the logo of Northwest Airlines, convincing some that Flight 2501 did in fact plunge into Lake Michigan. But when authorities troll the waters, they fail to find further evidence of the aircraft. For the next four days, the Coast Guard and the Navy circled the area. Nobody could figure out what happened. As investigators search for answers, a mystifying aspect of the lake's history begins to emerge. Flight 2501 isn't the only vessel to have disappeared in its deep waters. Since 1679, thousands of ships and airplanes have gone missing on Lake Michigan. All of the disappearances have occurred in an area of the lake known as the Michigan Triangle. Within this triangle, boats, planes, and people have gone missing, never to be found. What is the truth behind the deadly waters known as the Michigan Triangle? It's June 1950. Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 crashes into Lake Michigan, killing all 58 people on board. The plane is never found, joining a long list of vessels that have mysteriously vanished in an area known as the Michigan Triangle. So what's the truth behind these strange disappearances? Many believe the cause of the disappearances can be found in the relationship between geography and meteorology. Lake Michigan is 400 miles long. It's not uncommon to see a squall line that brings wind 75 miles an hour. But this only explains half of the story. Even if the mysterious fates of Flight 2501 and numerous other missing crafts can be attributed to Lake Michigan's perilous weather, why do all of them seem to vanish without a trace? In 2007, a surprising discovery casts new light on this seemingly cursed region of the lake. An ancient formation resting 40 feet below the water. One archaeologist discovered a ring of rocks beneath the surface with uh, carvings dating back to prehistoric times. The circle of stones is probably the remnants of an ancient civilization. Some people call this the North American Stonehenge. A place for mystical ritual. Many believe these strange circles are imbued with supernatural energy. But could the stones exert a metaphysical force strong enough to crash planes and sink ships? There's been theories that they're responsible for these disappearances. While some look for clues on the lake bed floor, others believe the answer looms in the skies above. Less than two hours after Flight 2501's last radio communication, two policemen across the lake in Wisconsin spotted a bizarre red light hovering above the water. Ten minutes later, it disappeared. Though the officers report the sighting to their superiors, the authorities are never able to identify the light's source. Yet similar sightings have been documented in the region since 1913. There are many people who have extrapolated this and presume that aliens have come into this region. This activity leads some to believe that a UFO was somehow behind the disappearance of Flight 2501. 
But without further evidence, the true circumstances that brought down the plane and countless other vessels may never be known. I think there's always going to be a mystery about these disappearances. Today, this long-sleeved shirt, which belonged to a passenger of Flight 2501, reminds visitors of the mysterious area known as the Michigan Triangle. Palm reading tools, potion bottles, and a taxidermied rattlesnake. These are but a handful of the curios on view at the Skepticism at the Center for Inquiry in Amherst, New York, an organization dedicated to investigating the seemingly unexplainable. But amidst these occult oddities lies a rather ordinary artifact. The object here is a conical item in which the sections telescope together. Some two feet long, it's in three sections of metal. Despite its commonplace appearance, according to senior researcher Joe Nickel, this object was once said to have an otherworldly purpose. This item is associated with one of the most profound and mysterious movements in American history. In what bizarre ritual was this trumpet used? And how did it help spark a craze that captivated America? Early 1852, Athens County, Ohio. A middle-aged farmer named Jonathan Coons is beginning to question the religious teachings that have long sustained him. But then he discovers an intriguing supernatural practice that's spreading across the United States. It's called spiritualism. Spiritualism holds that we don't really die, that you simply move to a different realm, and one can actually communicate with spirits of the dead. For Coons, this is the answer he's been looking for. He was losing his faith, but still wanting to believe that you don't just die. And this movement allegedly offer proof of that. Captivated by the promise of otherworldly contact, Coons begins to frequent seances where the living and the dead seem to miraculously reconnect through a psychic medium. And soon, a clairvoyant delivers a fateful message to Coons from the other side. She told him that he was a medium himself, a powerful medium. Curious about his potential psychic gift, Coons convenes a seance at his home to test his powers. And to his amazement, he reportedly receives an unusual request from the beyond. The spirits had said to put out musical instruments, and among those, John Coons put out a simple tin trumpet. And when Coons incorporates the trumpet into his seance, it displays extraordinary abilities. Witnesses report that it can broadcast the words of the dead. Voices would speak through the trumpet and be amplified. A musical instrument has never before been used to augment the voices of spirits. And the trumpet's powers don't end there. During seances, it supposedly floats in the air of the darkened room, seemingly without human help. All of this was powerful stuff. Word of Kuhn's supernatural trumpet spreads like wildfire. Newspapers picked it up, and very soon, people were coming from great distances to witness this really remarkable phenomenon. But with fame comes controversy. Not everybody was happy with what the Kuhnses were doing. 
Skeptics in their village begin to question the veracity of Kuhn's supernatural abilities. Some even accuse him of satanic subterfuge. Protests mount, and in 1858, spiral out of control. The discontent grew from small challenges to events culminating in their barn being burned. Fearing for their lives, the family decides to make a drastic change. They left Ohio and moved to another state. Once there, Coons claims that the spirits are no longer communicating with him, and the family ceases its seances. They soon retreat into obscurity. But Coons' pioneering work with the spirit trumpet cements his legacy. Other mediums embrace the device, and using instruments like this one on display at the Skeptizium in Amherst, New York, carry spiritualism to new heights. But the supernatural practice is about to come under attack from one of the world's greatest entertainers. It's the 1920s. The spiritualist movement and its psychics have attracted millions of followers. But one world-renowned entertainer is about to bring unwanted scrutiny on their otherworldly practices. Over the course of his illustrious career, famed magician Harry Houdini has been fascinated by spiritualism, but skeptical of the mediums who claim to communicate with the dead. The flames of his disbelief have been fed by clairvoyants who allege they are channeling the spirit of his beloved dead mother. Mediums would come out with messages, oh, Harry, I miss you so. And he was outraged because his mother didn't speak English and she never called him Harry. Harry was the stage name. His real name was Eric. This discrepancy makes it all too clear to Houdini that spiritualism is merely a collection of fraudulent tricks. So he sets out to catch mediums red-handed. And he has his sights on one of the objects that propelled the movement to great heights, Coons's vaunted spirit trumpet. Cleveland, March 1925. Houdini attends a seance where a medium is using the famed instrument. He positions himself near the trumpet, and when no one is looking, covertly daubs it with a fine black soot. Since it is purported to move without human help, the medium should remain smudge-free. As the seance begins, the trumpet seemingly stirs on its own during the session, amazing those in attendance. But as Houdini suspected, when the gathering comes to an end, the truth is revealed. The medium had black all over his hands and face. He had obviously handled the trumpet and was exposed. Houdini goes on to debunk many spiritualist practices. And as the 20th century unfolds, the ranks of the movement thin. The spirit trumpet is now largely a thing of the past. And today, this instrument at the Skeptizium serves as a dramatic reminder of the rise and fall of a peculiar craze that captivated the nation. Salem, New Jersey, home to the second oldest courthouse in the United States. This quaint town was first founded in 1673. And at the Salem Historical Society, over 300 years of history are on display, from an antique spinning wheel, to a grandfather clock, to the rhinestone shoe buckles of a local colonial judge. But one hefty artifact stands apart. This is a wooden object about 43 inches high and about 40 inches wide. 
you will find small cubby holes aligned across the back. Author and food historian Andrew Smith says this secretary desk once belonged to a man at the center of an extraordinary culinary tale still ingrained in Salem's local lore. According to the legend, our culinary history changed because of this one man with this courageous act. What incredible story took root in the fertile soil of New Jersey? And is it really true? New Jersey, 1820. In the years after the Revolutionary War, the small town of Salem has grown to be an important agricultural center. Farms dot the landscape, laying the foundation for New Jersey's official nickname, the Garden State. One proud resident of this bountiful area is Robert Gibbon Johnson. He was very active in the Salem County Agricultural Society, introducing new equipment and new farming techniques and new uh, products. Johnson is also an avid traveler, and from one of his globe-trotting trips, a curious story is born. According to the legend, Johnson returns home with the seeds of something completely foreign to Americans in the Northeast, the tomato plant. And he has a novel idea. Add the red-hued fruit to the growing list of crops produced in New Jersey. But there's a problem. According to the legend, everybody in America thought the tomato was poisonous. Known historically as the wolf peach, or apple of love, the tomato is a member of the nightshade family of plants, which includes many deadly offerings. But Johnson knows that this fruit is not among them. If only he can convince his fellow Salem residents that it's edible, he knows the crop could prove a boon for the local economy. It's something that they can grow and raise and make money on by selling it to others. And he has an ingenious way to persuade the populace that tomatoes are safe to consume. The only way that Johnson can prove to them that it's not poisonous is by publicly eating a tomato. As the story goes, at the end of the summer growing season, Johnson makes a shocking announcement in the local paper. On September 26th, on the steps of the town's courthouse, he will eat the supposedly poisonous plant. This shocked the local residents. They feared for his life. They worried that he would take a bite of the tomato and he would die. On the appointed day, Johnson mounts the courthouse steps, a basket of raw tomatoes in hand. The gathered crowd waits with bated breath, sure they've come to witness Johnson's death throes. He took one bite and the crowd roared with worry. In the midst of this, he took a second bite, then a third bite. Much to the amazement of the stunned witnesses, Johnson does not collapse in a poisoned heap, even after he consumes an entire mound of tomatoes. It is a revelation. It was the bite heard around the world. All of a sudden, everybody in New Jersey and in America began planting and growing tomatoes. The extraordinary story of this daring act takes hold within the region, prompting each generation to pass it on to the next. But over 150 years later, one man will make a discovery that gets to the tangled root of this sensational tale.
Salem, New Jersey, 1820. Robert Gibbon Johnson reportedly gorges himself on a basket full of round, red-hued fruit to prove to his countrymen that this strange food is anything but deadly. According to legend, this event marks the introduction of the now popular tomato in the American diet. But is this amazing tale of culinary daring really true? Over the years, the legend of Robert Gibbon Johnson's famous deed spreads far and wide. But in 1981, budding food historian Andrew Smith comes across the story in an academic journal. Intrigued, he delves deeper into the tale of Johnson and the tomato. And soon, he begins to doubt the veracity of the long-accepted story. His first clue that something might be awry? There is no evidence anybody in America at any time uh, considered a tomato to be poisonous. While tomatoes were not a common part of the American diet until the mid-1800s, Smith finds it wasn't due to their potentially lethal nature. Instead, it can be traced to the English and Northern European ancestry of most Americans at the time. It wasn't part of their culinary culture. It wasn't something uh, that uh, they liked the taste of. So if the tomato was never thought to be poisonous, what of the tantalizing tale of Robert Gibbon Johnson scaling the Salem courthouse steps and boldly biting into the forbidden fruit? For six months, I looked around trying to find evidence for the story. Despite consulting numerous contemporary sources, including a history of southern New Jersey written by Johnson himself, Smith can find no mention of the famed incident until 1908, when a single story made an unsubstantiated claim. In 1820, Robert Gibbon Johnson introduced the tomato into Salem. From that short statement, a legend grew. Then virtually every writer just added whatever they wanted in. Once one author mentions it, other authors pick it up and say this is what people believe. And in a state whose agricultural exports exceed $1 billion a year, it didn't take much for the culinary tall tale to take root and flourish. Virtually every year during tomato season, newspapers, magazines, radio stations, and even television stations picked up the story and repeated it. An entertaining bit of folklore soon became accepted history. And today, this secretary desk at the Salem Historical Society, once owned by Robert Gibbon Johnson, speaks of not only the fruit that took America by storm, but also the power of a good yarn. From a cold-blooded kidnapping to a subterranean terror, a spine-tingling seance to a mind-boggling meat shower. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.
The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu com, code GLOW. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.